welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barbara DeGraff, astrophysicist, pop culture enthusiast, and this is our second SACNIS show of this season. SACNIS stands for the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, and the annual convention is the largest gathering of scientists of color in the nation. Spark Science attends every year, and we had the honor of interviewing keynote speakers such as Dr. Lauren Esposito. She is a scientist who is one of only a dozen who study scorpions. Let's learn about these amazing creatures and the engaging researcher who studies them. I am Dr. Lauren Esposito, and I am the curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. Tell me, well, first of all, you did a speech uh, talk at lunch here at SACNIS 2018, and it was amazing. There were like people crying, and you, and it was, it was. I was not one of those. I just want to say no. That I said I, people. I didn't I say had to, you. Like, think, I had to like. That was like my biggest fear about today was that I was going to get up and like just start bawling on stage, and I did actually have like one tear in my eye, but I'm. I really powered through, choked it down. You go around the world finding scorpions yeah, and like pet yeah, them, yeah, yeah, and like take pictures with yeah, them. Yeah, I pet them and take pictures. That's that's my primary objective in doing <laughs> research all over the world. Social media, yeah, social media and petting scorpions because yeah. they love that. That's so let's like their favorite thing. Let's talk about your scorpions first, and okay. then we'll talk about why people got emotional when you were on stage. Okay, later. That's much more comfortable. Yeah. So my my scorpions. Well, I I'm a I'm an arachnologist and I study primarily I study scorpions. Um there's about 12 people worldwide that are professional scorpion biologists. 12 people. Yeah, there's not many scorpion biologists, but like we're really in the midst of an era of we're like in the golden age of scorpion research. Because 100 years ago, there was about 285 species of scorpions known to science. And mm-hmm. now, in the last 100 years, we've increased that number by a whole order of magnitude. And so we're at, I think, something like 2,400. What? And there's, like, dozens of new species discovered every year. So so this is, like, it's it's... When I say golden age, it sounds silly, but we're really in a golden age of scorpion wow. discovery, where we're discovering new species all the time. So that that's literally what you do. You go around the world and you're, you are discovering these these different species. Yeah, yeah. That's a big part of my work is, is exploratory work. And, and oftentimes it's targeted. So, like, I, I can look at a map and look and on that map know where all the scorpions that we've discovered so far are and when there's holes in that map. Like right. there's no scorpion discovered from there or documented from a place. Like you have a pretty good idea that you're going to go there and find something new. Or at a minimum, you're going to go there and provide new information about what lives on Earth and where. Right. That is so awesome. So I know nothing, like especially about anything bio- biology related. I'm like, that's my arm bone. Um, as, as that's what I say too. <laughs> I study invertebrates. <laughs> Arm bone, finger Arm bone. bone. Right, toe bone. Tell me about, like, if you're looking at this map and you're like, scorpions would like this this kind of environment, or are there different kinds of scorpions that like different kinds of parts of the world? Well, scorpions were the first multicellular predator to invade land. Wow. So their ancestors were, were aquatic. They lived in the ocean. They were these big, like, fish-eating, two-meter-long, scary monsters. And then oh they invaded God. terrestrial environments. and But the, their basic architecture has still been pre- preserved. So over really? the last 450 million years, the basic architecture of a scorpion is still exactly the same as it was 450 million years ago. 
But it's just not two meters. It's just not two meters. They're like max, like, you know. A foot? Hand length. Okay. Oh um, and the bigger they are, the less deadly they are. Is that true? Yeah, that's such a myth. Like, it's, okay. a, it's a really common misconception, but... Yes, help I, me. I think it comes from... So, like, like, if you think about where you would imagine a scorpion, it's the desert. Mm-hmm. Like, people think scorpion, they're like, oh, desert. Like, Arizona, there's scorpions in Arizona. And that's absolutely true. There's scorpions in Arizona. And in Arizona, the scorpions you most commonly see are big, hairy scorpions, literally called giant hairy scorpions mm-hmm. or desert hairy scorpions. I think that's – I like accurate names. Yeah. And then there's little scorpions, which would be the other ones you'd see. And those little ones are of – in Arizona, of the two kinds of scorpions that you're most likely to see, not even all the scorpions, but the ones you're most likely to see, the littler ones are more dangerous. Okay. But that's not that doesn't hold true for everywhere in the world by okay. any stretch of the imagination. And actually, scorpions are found in every ecosystem on Earth, other like than like rainforest, everything. Yeah, like other than the then like sub like Arctic and Antarctic, mm-hmm. like they don't like permanent freezing. Mm-hmm. So if like the Earth stays frozen for most of the year, like they're probably not there. Mm-hmm. But everywhere else they are, so they can be places where it snows. Like you find scorpions in the Andes, you find scorpions in the Alps. You find scorpions in the rainforest. Like, imagine a habitat, they're, they're there. I'm 100% sure. Is like, this, Texas, California. Is this why it's a golden age? Because was there, like, this misconception <clears throat> that it's only going to be deserty places, so they weren't really looked for in those deserty, like, outside of the deserty places? N- no, actually, we've known that scorpions live worldwide for a long, long time. The I would say the number one factor behind it being this golden age of scorpion discovery is that in the 1970s, early late 60s, early 70s, a new technology was discovered, which is black lights, like, you know, party black lights. But in the 70s, it was yeah. discovered that scorpions fluoresce under ultraviolet right. light. And so that enables researchers to go from, like, walking around during the day, flipping over logs and rocks and looking in little nooks and crannies yeah. and being lucky if you find a scorpion from after looking all day to now being able to go out at night when mm-hmm. these nocturnal creatures are active and spot them from two meters away. Right. So it really changed. It like ch- was a game changer. The black lights were being used everywhere, right? So like yeah. that's when it was like accidentally. I I'm feel sure. like that was like the heyday of black lights, right, right? Exactly. And so like I don't know. I actually don't know the story, and maybe one day I'll like have enough time to research it. Right. But I like to imagine like some like I don't know hippies out in the desert having a party out of their van. <laughs> no, but but in 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 all reality, around that time is when people started taking out fluorescent UV bulbs, mm-hmm. like the tube light bulbs. Yeah. And they'd hook it up to a car battery and carry that car battery around on their shoulder. Oh, my God. To do rock hounding. People were out looking for precious minerals and gems. That makes sense. Like back when rock hounding was still legal, like you could go do it on public lands. I've never heard that term. And rock I'm, hounding, yeah. I'm friends with geologists. I should know. No, actually. So tons of scorpions. And because you know that they're basically everywhere, you're looking at a map and you're like, if this... If there's, like, this void, then there's probably something in there. Yeah. Or there's something that is making it so none, no scorpions are there. And that would be yeah. something else to research. Yeah. Like, well, there's, I mean, there is one place where there's no scorpions, and that's New Zealand. But I don't go there because that's boring. Hmm. What's your favorite scorpion, like, habitat place to go? Well, my jam trekking? is really the neotropics. So that's, like, tropical areas in, in the Caribbean, Central America, and South America. Okay. That's, that's, my, that's like, my jam. Yeah. I love it. So, I love being hot and sweaty and, like, <laughs> walking around in mud for 16 hours a day. 
what's the percentage of scorpions that are dangerous? So like you're going out and you're hunting these down, like when are you scared? When are you not scared? Well, so all scorpions have venom. That's a unifying feature for scorpions. They all have a venom gland at the end of their tail. And inside that venom gland is, is our cells that produce venom peptides. But a one single scorpion, like an individual, could have a cocktail in their venom gland of 200 unique compounds. And those compounds range from antimicrobials to things that that are have act with a high degree of specificity on nervous systems and basically what they do is they go in and 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 it's the specificity is like animal specific so so mm, okay a, a neurotoxin that works on a mammal nervous system isn't going to work on an insect nervous system that's why they have a whole bunch that's why they have a whole bunch because scorpions have to evade predators which are mostly mammals and at the same time they have to be able to eat their prey which is mostly invertebrates insects so uh so in this cocktail, there's two major groups of scorpions. There's scorpions that have, as part of this cocktail, neurotoxins that act on mammals. And those are the ones that like, aren't necessarily dangerous, but will cause pain. Mm-hmm. Because what these neuropeptides are doing is they're going in and they're interfering with the way your nerves transmit signals to one another. Okay. And they're either telling your nerves to talk to one another and send a message to your brain that your body's experiencing extreme pain when it's not. Or they block those signals from transmitting to one another, make, causing like paralysis. And the primary one is the first one because if you're trying to get away from a predator, the best way is to like make it, like make it feel like it's on fire and it stops paying attention to where you're going. Right. You distract it with pain. Yeah, ex- distract it with extreme pain. And and so all the scorpions that fall into that category of having these pain-causing neurotoxins are the ones that like you should be concerned about. And it's also the ones where the 25 species that could kill an adult human belong to. It's the category of scorpions they belong to, which is a, a family called Boothidae. Okay. Booth City. Boothidae. No, Booth City. That's you don't want to be in Booth City. You don't want to be in Booth City. No. We should write a folk song about that. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. But hairy scorpions are all right. Oh, but they're cool. Yeah. Okay. They, they don't se- have those neurotoxins. They seem cool. But, you know, like, at the end of the day, they still have a giant stinger, and they're going to jab it into you, and it's going to hurt. Like, the same happens when you get pricked by a rose bush. Right. It hurts. Like, when thing, foreign objects get stabbed into your body, it hurts. So, I like to talk about pop culture a lot. I like to talk about, like, TV and movies. Like the band Scorpions? No. <laughs> I'm talking about, like, TV and movies representing entomologists. Yeah. Because literally... Well, it's like arachnophobia. There's arachnophobia. Yeah. But literally... Those, those arachnologists were terrible. Every so often in a little town somewhere, there is a health scare. There's a rumor going around that some kind of spider might have killed Sam Metcalf. Doubtful. Spiders make convenient culprits. There's no spider here. I think one of your Venezuelan spiders hitched a ride here. There may be some spiders around here that are very dangerous. Yeah, chill out. Just run. They spread out from a central nest in a web-like pattern and dominate the entire area. When that happens, this town is dead. Better uncork my private stock. Arachnophobia. Eight legs, two fangs, and an attitude. Unleashing monster spiders on the population. They didn't do their job well. No. They didn't adhere to the code. No, not at all. Like, first... Like, first rule of the code is, like, don't let the animals out. Right. Which I have to admit I'm guilty of having done on occasion. 
Spark Science will be back with more from the SACNIS National Convention, the number one convention with a focus on inclusion in STEM. Welcome back to Spark Science. This is our second SACNIS show of this season. SACNIS stands for the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, and the annual convention is the largest gathering of scientists of color in the nation. The first time I ever knew what an entomologist was, because again, I'm a physicist, not all scientists know all the other science. Yeah. We're not all Doc Brown. We're not all inventors. Um, so I was... Speak for yourself. <laughs> I know all the scientists. Do you? No. I'm I don't sorry. know any. Dr. Esposito knows all the scientists. Uh, all the sciences. Um, and the scientists. Um, so I'm watching Backyardigans, which um, you have, you know, kids, and so you might know of this show. I mean, I know of Backyardigans. I okay. can't confess I've ever watched a single episode. Okay, I've watched every episode because my daughter was very into it. And there's one that had classical music, but it was set in the Wild West. And the, it was about catching a golden butterfly. Mm-hmm. And in the song he sings, entomology is what I do. And I remember thinking, like, Dory my four-year-old knowing at that moment what entomology was because he was studying these these you know these animals these insects and bugs and stuff and I was like oh yeah that's what that is you know so like but how is your science like portrayed in pop culture that you agree with that you don't agree with that it just isn't there like Mm -hmm. have you thought about this well I would say I'm I'm actually other than arachnophobia I'm actually well I wouldn't say that I'm not an entomologist my my current position is in an entomology department, so I'm sort of like a token entomologist. Okay. Like entomology is technically things with just six legs, but I guess they'll like let That's a couple extra myself. in. Yeah. From time to time. Yeah. Because they hired me, so I guess that works. Um, yeah. And I, I think in pop culture, like most of the time, entomologists are portrayed as like a, like some real big dorks. Yeah. They're like into bugs and like carry around a butterfly net and wear like a funky hat yeah and probably a vest it's which, they're always wearing vests like those things are all true that <laughs> entomologists do wear a vest and a funky hat and carry around a butterfly net so it's accurate but at the same time i just feel like it's also you know like they're kind of like usually like a bumbling dorky person who's like socially inept and usually a dude like a white dude yeah I would say most of the time. Yeah. In this show, it was a penguin, but... Well... And his name was Pablo, so they tried. All right. (laughs) Penguins, like, mixed. Yeah, we have no idea. Yeah, they're ethnically ambiguous. Yeah. All we know is his name's Pablo. Um, So shout out to whoever else watches Backyard Against. I still watch it every once in a while. Um, On your own. With your daughter. Sometimes. I'm like, ah, this is nice. I remember this episode. Um, But so... I want to take us to the talk that you did today at Sacknes. Mm-hmm. As a scientist who is part of the queer community, you wanted to be able to for other people to know that you and others exist. Based, I don't know. That's what yeah. I got. No, that's absolutely it. I mean, I think in some ways it was like slight, slightly selfish because I I've been working in STEM for a long time. I've been a professional scientist for several years at this point. I mean, I guess I don't know what at what point you call yourself a professional scientist, but like. I got my PhD six years ago, so we yeah seven years ago. Got my PhD seven years ago, so I feel like we're like twins. Me too. So I feel like I've been a professional scientist for seven years at least, and yeah. maybe more. But 
I like in spite of that, like I've I basically haven't known any other queer scientists in my career. I, like a handful of acquaintances. Mm-hmm. Nobody working in my discipline. For sure. I mean, definitely no scorpion biologists. Yeah. Like, that's hands down. But even there's only 12 of them. Yeah, there's only 12 of us. So, like, statistically, 10% of the population is LGBTQ. So, like, you're so it? 12 is, like, I'm it. Like, unless, until we get 20, maybe, then we'll have another. Right. But, um, yeah, I so I, I felt isolated. You know, I work, I work at the California Academy of Sciences, which is in San Francisco, which is super gay. Hella gay, as they would say in the Bay Area. Yeah. And... Their vernacular. Yeah. And... And yet, like, and we have a very diverse group of employees overall, but among the research staff or the research faculty, I'm the only queer researcher. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I won't even say that. I'm the only queer PI, the only queer head of a lab. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some some queer students, but but the visibility at the higher level, like the visibility from 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 the senior level and up among the researchers is is none it's mm-hmm. me and that that feels isolating too so so i feel isolated in my discipline i feel isolated in my place of employment although i have amazing i will say i have amazing amazing allies um, and support and support like hands down like i wouldn't want to be anywhere else and be the right. only one <laughs> and so you're like if if i can't feel totally at home and myself and not isolated in this wonderful environment then what are other people feeling? yeah exactly like what I can't be the only one and and you know so I'll talk a little bit about maybe about the inspiration for for coming up with the visibility campaign which is like in in February I think February I can't remember what month now maybe March was women's month yeah and our institution, the California Academy of Sciences, our research division decided to put on a women in science event. And we invited all these women scientists. We reached out to the local 500 women scientists. And I felt like it was the response was so overwhelming and so positive and such like a, a community building exercise. And people were just happy to be cel- excuse me, celebrated for being women in science. And I thought like, Man, imagine if there was something like that for queer scientists. And imagine if you could cross the bridges of discipline and institution and find other queer scientists out there in the world to create a sense of camaraderie with and just to stand up next to. Mm -hmm. And so I consulted with some other people. I talked to a master's student from the Cal Academy who's queer and who had put organized on his own like a LGBT meetup at a scientific conference that had happened earlier that year. So I knew he was interested in trying to promote community and asked for his help. And I met with two straight non-scientist allies who specialize in social media and are amazing. I need to, I need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and they, I was like, this is what I want to do. Could you help? And they were like, we like the, we can't even imagine like how honored we would feel to be able to play a part in this. Like this is something we believe in and this is exactly the reason that we're in social media is to do things like this. And so I got really lucky because I found people that were willing to help me put on a social media campaign, not knowing myself how to run a social media campaign at all. Or not, I mean, and you also didn't have the fear. Do you know what I mean? Like you didn't know it well enough to to be afraid that that something else might happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I felt, you know, once once I once I got ha- I had their agreement to help, like I had people to just run the ideas by and and had people that could give me a sense of like what to do and what to expect. Mm-hmm. And so we launched 
the campaign in in June. And prior to launch, which I, is called which is called Five Hundred Queer Scientists. Okay. And prior to June, I had started emailing through like emailing just through colleague networks, right? Looking for people that would be willing to submit their bios for our launch. Mm-hmm. So just like sort of offline collecting bios. Yeah, friends of friends of friends. Friends of friends of friends. And yeah. I, I, my goal was to collect fifty bios to launch, and I did. I got fifty. That's awesome. And we launched on June fourth of twenty eighteen, and you know, you, like like with anything, you don't really know what's gonna happen. Like I sent out this tweet into the netherlands of cyberspace, yeah. the ether, the ether. Yeah, and waited. And then almost immediately had this huge response, like mm-hmm. a huge outpouring. Which means it really needed to happen, Which right? People were waiting for it to happen. I think so. I think, you know, there's been a lot of, of community building among LGBT people in STEM on social media over the last few years. Like there's been, there was a survey initiative where people were surveying LGBT experiences in a scientific way. And... And there's a lot of like hashtags surrounding LGBT STEM, like step pride in STEM and LGBT STEM. And this year there was the first LGBT STEM day, which was on uh, July 5th. Wow. And that was organized by a whole bunch of, of organizations and, and individuals. And so I think like the, the world was ready, like the STEM world was ready for something to rally behind mm-hmm. and posting bios, which are accessible online in like a brief way was a great way to just raise visibility and the time was right and we launched for pride month which is june right and the response was amazing and within three weeks we had collected 500 so we could put our put our money where our mouth was yeah and say we had put the 500 in the 500 crew scientists and now you have like 750 now we have 750 yeah the first few weeks was overwhelming because we got you know 50 plus submissions a day contributions a day and was it just you going through that or your social media people too it was me and and one primary partner her name's laurel allen she's an incredible science communicator and social media pro and she was her and i were going through and copy editing all of the bios and manually you gotta do that because it's gonna be like weird you know decimals and yeah just typos typos. i mean the form wasn't amazing and there's no way to edit it once you submitted it and Mm -hmm. we also wanted to ensure that all of them were consistent like we we wanted to all be first person like we want people to tell their stories not us to tell their stories in third person you want to make it your best and it takes a lot of your soul and time yeah i mean it it wasn't just that i wanted to make it my best i wanted everybody to be their best exactly yeah you know i want i was trying to highlight people for themselves not for me right and and so we were, you know, we tried to pay as much of attention to detail as we could, and and make sure nobody got lost along the way, because mm-hmm. we were getting so many submissions in, like it was easy, it could very easily could have gotten right out of control, and now it's now it's calmed down. And social media is like a really dynamic and changing environment, and and running a campaign on social media is something you have to like stay up on every day. Yeah, we found out we're like the exact same age, right? So like, yeah. we're I am also not. I'm old. Yeah, I'm no. like an old lady yet. I, I can't be that, doing social media. I say that all the time, and my students are like, you're not old. And I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. I say stuff all the time. That I'm a granny. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually a granny. Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I, I'm I'm trying to use best practices at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there was one thing that after I got off stage, I was like, oh, I forgot to say that. 
And that's just that, you know, for me, one of the things that was really important about talking about 500 queer scientists at SACNAS is, is that I think all of the ways in which our identities are intersectional are both make us an asset because it, it helps science have a broader mindset in, in the kinds of research that we're doing and the ways that we do that research. So it progresses science to have intersectional scientists. But at the same time, it makes your identity that much more isolating mm -hmm. because now you're not only dealing with biases that are implicit with your your ethnic background or your heritage, you're also dealing with biases that are implicit with your your gender orientation or your mm -hmm. or your or your sexuality and and you know that just makes it one tiny bit or one huge amount more difficult to see yourself in STEM and to persist in STEM. Yeah. So, but to know that you're valuable. Yeah. Right. I mean, you are valuable. Like yeah. you're, what you have to say is, is more valuable than somebody who d can't think outside of the box. Mm -hmm. But that intersectionality creates as many, as many opportunities for science as a whole because it advances science, also creates opportunities as on an individual level to hinder your ability to do science. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's for me why it was so important to speak here at SACNAS. This show was recorded on location at the convention in San Antonio, Texas. We'd like to thank Dr. Esposito for taking the time to talk to us at such a busy convention. You can follow Dr. Esposito on Twitter at ArachnologyNerd and the movement to highlight LGBTQ plus scientists at 500QueerSci. 500QueerSci. If you'd like to know more about SACNAS, check out their website, sacnas.org. You can learn more about Dr. Esposito's work with scorpions and a cure for cancer by watching her TED Talk from October 2018. Spark Science is recorded on location in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The, the producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Zarek Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and is created in partnership with KMRE. Thank you for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow.